Well, this afternoon, we're going to be continuing in our walk through the book of Hebrews, uh, looking at part eight of growing in the greater than. We'll actually be rounding out um, Hebrews chapter 12 today. Uh, Next week, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 13 as we begin uh, some exhortations. But let's hear from this last section of of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Let us listen uh, to God's holy word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. (coughs) Excuse me, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. (coughs) Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard these words. And while they come to us from a page, they are not words on a page. Not just words on a page. But rather, these are words which come from you. These are your words. For we have heard now in these words your voice. And so help us, Father, to receive it as such. To receive these words as your speaking to us. Help us, Father, to give attention to them and to not refuse them. We ask, Lord, that you would mold us each according to your purposes into the image of Christ. We ask, our Father, that you would nourish our faith and and increase our faith by the ministry of your word through the work of your spirit. Would you guide this preacher? Would you chain him to the text of your word that he might freely declare truth and do so clearly, accurately, with understanding? So now, Lord, we ask that by your word, you would speak to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) As we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, again, just as a reminder, the overall theme and the overall idea of the book of Hebrews Hebrews, is that there's this one who is the greater than. Uh, Jesus Christ, the greatest revelation, greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than the priesthood, the greatest sacrifice. And thus, we have no hope outside of him. 
and no reason to turn to anything else. We've seen the importance of holding on to the greater than in Hebrews chapter 11, holding on to him by faith. And in holding on to him by faith, we get the endurance that we so need. That just at, that by faith, just as just as Abel's sacrifice was accepted because he was accepted by faith, not because the sacrifice was more worthy, but because he was accepted by faith. So we are accepted by faith with God. And we've been looking in chapter 12 at this idea of now growing in the greater than growing in faith, growing in endurance, growing in the likeness of Christ through the outworking of sanctification, which we'll get more in detail on that last part uh, next time in Hebrews chapter 13 and following. The overall idea of this section is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, when it says that there's a race that is set before us and that we are called upon to run it. And this race that we run, we run looking to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who endured the agonies of the cross on account of or because of the joy that was set before him. That joy is and was his. And so he, because of what was his, he endured the agonies. And so we look at that and we say, we have this great joy that is set before us that is ours. So let us endure by faith, not despising the shame of the cross. We saw that that brings meaning to the difficulties and sufferings in our life. We view that through the lens of the fatherly discipline of our Lord, which is of great assurance to us. It shows that God loves us and cares for us and is working in us. His discipline being both formative and corrective. Both formative and corrective. When we think of discipline, we often automatically think of in terms of, in terms of a punishment or punishment. Uh, rather, it is also formative. That is, that he brings things in our life just like Job, not because we've done something that needs correction, but because he is showing who he is in our life. <clears throat> and then we saw the need to lift up droopy arms and to make straight our paths and, and to strengthen our weak knees. <clears throat> and then from that we are told to pursue something. In fact, pursue two things. To pursue, first of all, peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That is because we have peace with Christ, we have every reason to be at peace with all people and to be peaceable with all people and to bring the peace of, peace of Christ to all people through the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even those who would be our enemies and to pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. No one will see the Lord without holiness. That holiness is already ours because Christ has done it for us. He is our righteousness. He is our holiness. It's not just the pursue a general sense of holiness, but pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And since it's ours, we're called to pursue it, which in this life, we will never get there. In this life, we won't get there. We will make progress, but it will be inches, whereas there is thousands of miles to get there. But yet we are called upon to pursue that holiness. 
we saw that there were four exhortation, one exhortation with four implications to watch out for one another, to watch that none of us fall away from the grace of God, that there's not a bitter root of which is hearkening back to the language of unbelief, the bitter root of unbelief, or that there is anyone who is sexually immoral, uh, most likely referring to the imagery in Old Testament prophetic literature of the of sexual immorality be, being used as a metaphor for unbelief and idolatry. Now, he deals with actual sexual immorality in chapter 13, which we'll be getting into uh, next week, into chapter 13. Um, <clears throat> And then as well, godlessness like Esau and his godlessness being uh, illustrated and exemplified by the fact that he despised his birthright. That is, when he came home, he wanted soup that Jacob was making. And Jacob, uh, uh, Jacob said, no, Esau said, give it to me. Jacob said, sell me your birthright. And he said, "Okay, I'll give you my birthright for a bowl of soup. So he despised his birthright, thus illustrates the godlessness. And we also saw last time the superiority of the what we have in the new covenant to all that has come before. We must remember the temptation to return to the Mosaic covenant, that covenant having served its purpose and it's not going to be returning for the real thing has come. And it's not something we can touch or see or feel but rather we have come to something far greater, though we don't see it, though we don't hear it, though we don't have sensory experience of it, just like the old covenant with all of its thunderings and its visual sacrifices and all the things that are very sensory, uh, sensory based. We've come to something better and more real. And now we return again to a similar idea as a basis for our service to him. And this is rooted in the last uh, five verses here of chapter 12 in the completeness and superiority of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. We have another contrast, just like in the previous verses, between the temporal and earthy nature of the old covenant and, and even the old creation itself in contrast to the new covenant and the new creation and new humanity that Christ has affected. <clears throat> we open up our passage with an imperative. Verses 18 through 24 was what we call an indicative. Um, and you've heard this before, um, back to grammar school days. Um, and again, if you have a little bit of a twitch or something when you hear that, you know, that's perfectly understandable to hear the idea of gra- uh, sixth grade grammar. Um, but you learn something called about a declarative verb, which is the idea of declaring something, saying something, this is the case or this is the way it's perceived. Um, and that's what an indicative, and that's what we saw in verses 18 through 24. You have not come, but you have come. Here in verse 25, we now have an exhortation or an imperative or a command. And that command, that exhortation is to watch out or see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking? Who is the one who is doing the speaking to whom, uh, of whom we are not to refuse? It is not the author of the book of Hebrews, ultimately, who is doing the speaking. Rather, he is giving an exposition of Scripture. 
He's, expo- he's giving an exposition of the redemptive history and the flow of redemption in Scripture. So if what he's saying is scriptural, it's not the author who is doing the speaking, but it is God who is doing the speaking. And so to refuse these words, he is saying, is to refuse God, to refuse what God has to say. Anytime we read God's word, we are being brought into confrontation. And by confrontation, I don't mean it in terms of a bad thing. We just brought face to face with the living God himself when we read his word. When his word is, when his word is faithfully preached, that is, a sermon, in as much as it is true to God's word, is the word of God. And we are brought into face to face with God and to refuse the words of God is to refuse him. And so he's war- he's giving a warning, do not refuse what God has to say here. And it has every and it ha- and it's strengthened by the contrast between the two covenants, between the old covenant and between the new covenant. That first of all, we have the refusal in the, in the old covenant, which we remember the old covenant is an earthy covenant. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant is a, as we've learned through in our study of Hebrews and in other studies, the old covenant is a restatement of the covenant God made with all of humanity in the garden, which was do this and live, obey me and live. For life in the land, that's what the Mosaic Covenant was. Do this and live. It was not, at its core, a gracious covenant. It had gracious elements, but it was not a covenant of grace. It was a covenant of works for life in the land. It testified of God's law. And they and we see right away when God gave the, the words of the covenant and we read it, they said those faithful words at the end, this we will do. And immediately this they did not do. And over and over and over again. And we see the refusals immediately. Uh, we see the refusals of which, which are being spoken of. And again, this is referring just verses 18 through 24. We're referring to the events at Sinai when God gave his 10 commandments and Israel was at the base of the mountain and the thunder was was going. The lightning was going. God was speaking to Moses and it was a majestic, scary, frightening event. And Moses was up there for quite a while and they got restless and they said, we, we, we don't know when Moses is coming down, but we need, to do, we need to make sure we please God. So we're going to make an idol. Let's make an idol. So Aaron, uh, uh, at the behest of the elders of Israel, gathered up gold. They all gathered gold, and he put it all into the, the kiln, and a golden calf was made. It's really kind of a comical event when you read it. Moses comes down and he sees the golden calf and he says to Aaron, what is this you have done? And he said, well, they all brought me this gold. I put it into the kiln and this golden calf came out. That's the way that's the way it reads. And when it came out, they said, this is the God who delivered us from Egypt. Take note. They were worshiping probably not in their minds a false god. They were worshiping Yahweh. 
but they were worshiping him not according to how he had revealed himself. They were worshiping him falsely according to a graven image. And of course, immediately afterwards, God smote a lot of people. I had a friend who did a series um, early on in his pastor called Men Whom God Smote. And he smote quite a, he smite, he smited or smote a, a good number of people at that, at that event. Still, in Numbers chapter 16, during uh, their wilderness excursion, or I should say exile, they were being impatient with Moses. A group of uh, folks known as the sons of Korah were becoming impatient with Moses. And they demanded that he, um, and they said, Moses is gathering power unto himself, trying to lord it over us. So you need to follow us. And Moses, of course, you know, the Lord told Moses, tell the people to get away from them for I'm going to just because I'm for I'm going to judge them. And so Moses said, get away from the sons of Korah, all ye folks. And lo and behold, the earth opened up and they went into the ground and the earth swallowed up the sons of Korah. They refused God's word. And throughout the history of Israel, throughout old te- uh, the history of the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, there were many rebellions of kings and the people and many temporal judgments and it ultimately resulted in their ouster from the land when both assyria for the northern kingdom and babylon and the southern kingdom sacked both of them and drove them into exile but that covenant was not kept because that was a two-way conditional covenant conditions to be kept do this and live Calvin says of this, what this tells us, in summary, he says, he says it in a lot of words, so I'm giving a summary. But Calvin said that essentially what this tells us is that the external law was earthy. The external law was earthy. So he then says if they suffered severe consequences when they refused, he then says this, how do we expect to escape if we refuse what God has to say to us in a new and better covenant. This actually is channeling language that he has already used. It so appears that it's channeling language he's already used from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. <coughs> Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That's uh, wrapping up the section about how Jesus is uh, the greater than, who is Jesus, is greater than the angels. And to neglect this great salvation, which is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ, on account of the temporal difficulties they were facing, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great thing, even temporal (coughs) consequences, and if one who, and and if we don't receive it, then what hope? do we have because <clears throat> we remember this covenant is not simply new this covenant is better it is a better covenant 
with a better head for a better salvation. We sometimes don't like the idea that we need a representative uh, before God. Because, you know, us, most of us all being probably red-blooded Americans, I stand on my own two feet here. When in reality, we need someone to represent us before God. Adam represented us before God, and he failed. So when he failed, we failed. Moses represented God, represented before God, the people of Israel. He stood there as their spokesperson, representing them. And he actually failed as well. For he, fa- he failed numerous occasions, but the one that God really points out is when he uh, hit the rock a second time instead of speaking to it and commanding the water uh, to come out, for it says he did not believe what God had to say. David represented the people as their king. And as, as so as the king went, so went the people. <coughs> And we now have a better, a superior, superior covenant head, a representative before us for a better and superior and eternal salvation. And in that, he has not taken the old humanity and, give, and made it 2.0, nor has he taken the old covenant and made it 2.0. Rather, he's created a new humanity and he's made a new creation. All things made new. Even at the end, we see the, 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 old, the old earth passes away and the new comes. Whether that means the complete transformation of it or the destruction and, and making new, either way, you know, uh, choose your own adventure there. I don't know which one it is. Um, so when we, we see this new humanity and this new creation, And that's what he's created. And so what is it to refuse God in this? Well, remember the previous warnings to watch out for one another, to watch out that none of us like Esau are godless and despise our birthright. Watch out that none of us take what is ours in Christ Jesus and set it aside and say, I'm more concerned about what's happening right here and right now. Or leaving behind Christ. Or turning to ourselves and our own works. Now, here's the rub. You and I do this all the time. You and I do this all the time. We despise our birthright so often. We, leave, we, we neglect Christ. And we turn to ourselves and our own merits and our own works and our own thoughts. So to refuse it is to think all that is okay rather than turning to Christ in our own weakness and our own uh, in our in our weakness turning to him for the, for while the old covenant was earthy in its nature the new covenant in the gospel it leads our minds to a heavenly place it leads our minds to God's throne room it leads us to that which is unseen but that which is absolutely superior And while the law was good and is good, and the old covenant was good, and it was good because God created and God gave it, it was a training school to prepare for Christ. It laid the groundwork for Christ. And to ensure the continuity of the people 
who would usher in the Christ, the Savior of all peoples from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. The Old Covenant had all sorts of what we call civil laws. The law was broken up and there's three basic parts of the law. There's the moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial. The ceremonial was all the sacrifices and and all the religious practices. The civil or judicial was all the government regulations for the commonwealth of Israel. And then there was the moral law, the Ten Commandments, which are God's abiding moral law. But even in the Old Covenant, there are elements of that which were tied, the language were tied to Old Covenant Israel, but the principles behind them abide because they reveal God's nature. And that law, in particular, the civil and the ceremonial, have fulfilled their purpose. They were tied to that old covenant, which is no more. But they protected that people so that they would not destroy themselves and that they would usher in Christ. So there's a warning. There's a redemption from sin found only in Christ To be outside of Christ is to be in our sin. And furthermore, to look outside of Christ for our Christian life, for our growth, for the outworking of our sanctification and our witness is to sabotage ourselves. It is to sabotage ourselves. To turn to our devices and our thoughts. Or to turn Christian life into just a matter, another form of do this and live. Do better, try harder. We're missing the point. We can go to a bookstore. And it doesn't matter whether it's uh, in the Christian section or in other sections of a bookstore. Some of the most popular things are, let me, I've got four steps for you to find this. Or four steps to being spiritually mature. And it's all about do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But the gospel of Christ and the MO of Christianity is starting with this. It's done. It's done. We never leave that foundation. And then he speaks of a voice. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Again, they heard the voice of God in the form of the thunderous noise and all of the shaking, whereas Moses was hearing what God was actually saying. Uh, This is a recap and a a statement of what we read last week from Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So that voice that went before them, it shook the earth. It shook them. It was a tangible, physical experience. Last week I mentioned um, the idea of the storms that I got to experience while living in North Texas, the uh, massive thunderstorms that would come through. 
the eerie, the eerie green look to the air, knowing full well right around the corner, okay, we've got something coming. And then the storm comes, and you're sitting out and enjoying the thunder and lightning. And then the thunder and lightning, the lightning gets really close, and it comes at the same time as the thunder, and it shakes the whole house, and you go run inside. That's the experience that they were having. It was a tangible experience. But in the New Covenant, it goes beyond that. It is not merely earthy, but it touches heaven. But not only heaven, it touches eternity and all nations. You say, it doesn't say all nations there. It just says it just shakes the heavenlies. Well, he's actually quoting from Haggai. He's quoting from Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. If you have trouble finding Haggai, it's in the Minor Prophets, you know, towards the end of the Old, Old Testament Scriptures, in the section I like to call HZHZ. Um, you say, what does that mean? Well, it's uh, Haggai, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Zechariah. HZHZ. So if you find one of those four, you can easily find one of those other three. Here, Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And at the end of the, towards the end of the chapter, in verse 21, the Lord tells Haggai, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Speaking of something that's going to come, he's ultimately speaking of Christ. But notice the language there. Not only will he shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, he will shake all nations. Most likely the original readers of the book of Hebrews, probably being mostly Jewish uh, Christians of a Jewish background, were quite familiar with the Old Covenant Scriptures. So they would have had this background. They would have heard that, oh, yeah, it also says all nations. So it's not just a provincial thing, but all nations, people from every tongue and tribe, and nation and people, as we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 5 and in chapter 7. And he also says the glory of the latter temple will be greater than the former. Haggai was written um, while they were building what we call the second temple, telling them, hey, get to the task, get to building. You kind of let things go. Telling them to get to building that second temple. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, when it was built, the people, uh, people who remembered Solomon's temple, who had been around then, saw the new temple, and they, rather than rejoicing, they wept, because it was a, it was a, it was a uh, pale in comparison to Solomon's temple. But here he says the latter temple will be greater in glory than the former temple, indicating that it's not speaking about this actual building, but something far greater. It's the temple that we see that we spoke of last time. 
uh, when we spoke of the dwelling place of God, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the temple of Ezekiel, the temple of Revelation. If you take the measurements of the, of the temples spoken of in Ezekiel and Revelation and you take those measurements, you see that isn't going to fit really anywhere in the world. It's so big. So what is this temple? This temple is the people of God. It is the church of Jesus Christ. His people, composed throughout, uh, of his people throughout the ages, visible in communities like this one right here in gospel churches throughout the world. And so the second temple. And this people, all nations, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are under this banner and only under this banner. And in, in tr- it is true only under Christ in the new covenant and in the new community. That is, there is a unity and a sense of identity that transcends all the other senses of identity and unity that people make for themselves. In fact, we might say that he created a new feather. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you ever heard the phrase, birds of a feather flock together? That's usually used as an observation of how people who uh, tend to prefer the company of people who are just like themselves. Now, for me, I struggle with that idea because I find myself incredibly boring. So I want to be around people who are not like me. However, he created a new feather. But that feather is not tied to a national identity or an ethnic identity or a socioeconomic identity. Rather, it is tied to the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you, so the church of Jesus Christ, this temple is composed of people, <coughs> excuse me, from... <laughs> Every different background, and you put all people from, in a, from a different background together, which is illustrated in a micro level in a marriage, because you immediately have two cultures that come together, the male culture and the female culture. But you have people from different backgrounds all together engaged in one of the most intimate, important things we can be engaged in. That has kind of a refining effect <coughs> in the life of the Church of Jesus Christ. And this was illustrated, I've been reading, uh, the men learned this yesterday, but I've been reading a a dissertation. Um, I still like to pull up my old academic roots in academia and find some dissertations to read. And this one was written at a state university in New England on history, in, in a department of history, but specifically relevant to Baptist history. And it was uh, supervised by mostly faculty from that school, but a couple of uh, but a couple of uh, seminary guys helped supervise the dissertation as well because of the Baptist history part. But the title of it has to do with how how what we went through the two kingdoms series, as in how the two kingdoms theology of those early Baptists helped them remain united with one another in different countries, despite their countries being at war with one another. So uh, one uh, the three main characters are one of them is probably is kind of significant to American history by the name of Isaac Bacchus. Then there was one named Daniel Merrill, both Americans. And then there was a Pastor Manning in Canada. The, the Americans and the colonial Baptists and the Canadian Baptists had quite a bit of cooperation with each other. 
But then something happened and there was great fear. One reason Isaac Bacchus was very reluctant to embrace the revolution was because he was afraid of breaking unity with his Canadian brothers. But he, they realized they, they, they wrote letters to one another during the conflict and they still had great unity during that conflict in spite of the, the colonies and Great Britain because Canada was Great Britain at the time, part of Great Britain were at war with one another. And after that was over, they continued their face-to-face fellowship and they continued their, um, their working together in person to send missionaries and to plant churches in both countries. Then the War of 1812 happened. And once again, Great Britain went to war with the United States and vice versa. Daniel Merrill, the American pastor, in a letter to Pastor Manning, Uh, said this however the differences may be between the governments among men be it our concern to be in obedience to the government of god pastor manning in his own journals in canada wrote this this day felt uneasy in the morning an unpleasant sensation but in reading and meditating found my mind sweetly led after god in a sweet union to american brethren notwithstanding the dreadful war that exists between the two powers So they saw that this was a people composed of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation that transcended the national identities of their respective locations. It's a universal covenant for a universal people. The author, uh, Ronald Baines, makes the comment that the distinction between the civil kingdom and the kingdom of God was clear enough for these men to maintain warm feelings for, for, uh, for the other, even though their governments were at arms. You see, that all this to say, it's not a provincial covenant of an earthly nature, nor one of blood lineage or nationality or ethnicity or socioeconomic class. It's one of the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ which cries a better word than the blood of Abel, whereas the blood of Abel cried for justice and vengeance. The blood of Christ cries... Forgive them. Forgive them. A universal and spiritual covenant of an eternal nature. And this covenant, yet once more, as it is repeated, cannot be shaken. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There are things that cannot be shaken, and that is this new covenant and all the benefits and the new people and the new creation cannot be shaken and will not be taken away. They will not be destroyed. Christ himself uh, did the shaking with his life, with his death, with his burial and his resurrection, and we will once again bring it to bring it again. For he defeated death, he defeated our sin, and he shall in that day, bring us to resurrection and bring death to its final end. It's also of an eternal nature, so it cannot be subject to the whims of time. And so what is it that remains and what is it that passes? Well, Christ's righteousness remains. His people and his new humanity, this new temple remains. Thus, this new creation which, into which we have been made remains. This new creation which he has made in in himself remains. Therefore, 
And that's such an important word in verse 28. Therefore. In the, in the Greek text here in, the, in our translation. Therefore let us be grateful receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The Greek text receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken proceeds. Let us be grateful. So we're going to deal with that first. Um, therefore. Having received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That therefore, think of that. This kingdom that we received cannot be shaken. It cannot be torn apart. A massive earthquake can make minced meat of uh, the most majestic buildings that we create. But this kingdom that of which we have received cannot be shaken. And that should bring us great comfort. That should bring us great comfort. Consider the original readers facing persecution. This kingdom of which they are a part cannot be shaken. That we have received cannot be shaken. It cannot be undone. Nothing will end it. Nothing will change it. For Jesus, Jesus the Christ who lived and died for us, as we'll learn in Hebrews 13, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. <clears throat> I've been told many times that as I age, you know, I'm pushing 50 now, a year and a half away from being an old man. Um, <laughs> actually, for me, an old man is just one year older than what I am. So, uh, <laughs> I've been told that as I get older, I'm going to become more resistant to and disliking of change, even change that's beneficial. That change becomes hard and difficult. And so when I was told that in my 20s, I thought, okay, I need to be aware of that because I, I want to age gracefully. And instead of being, you know, shaking my fist at the change, what I want to do is I want to learn how to pivot and how to roll with punches. But of course... I am finding that to be true. That change gets harder as I get older. But I pray that the Lord would help me remember that there is one thing that does not change. And help us remember there's one thing that does not change. And that is a kingdom that cannot be shaken, of which we are a part. Nothing will take it away. To speak of this kingdom is not to speak of princes and kings and lands, which so often change, but of God's redemption in Jesus Christ. It's a rule that includes all who come in faith to Jesus Christ, populated only by those who have the new birth. There is no one whose sin is outside of the envelope of God's grace, save refusing the testimony of the, of, of the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ with finality, for that is the only means by which our sin is undone. But there is no sin that is outside the scope of God's grace in which that person cannot be included in God's people if they come to faith in Christ. One who, um, in the, the blindness of sin, being confused about their gender, who goes through surgery, if they come to faith in Jesus Christ and, and, and are repentant, as we are all living in repentance, are welcome in God's household. For they too can live joyful, fruitful lives as believers in Christ Jesus. Not a single one of us has a leg to stand on. The goal here is establishing us in himself. A couple weeks ago, I was hiking in the, the kettles. Well, more like a couple months ago, I was hiking in the kettles. 
and I noticed that there was uh, probably a, a, about a 100-foot tree that had fallen over, but it didn't fall over. It came down out at the roots. And I saw the backside, and the roots were just sticking out. I thought, that tree was not well-established in the soil. Well, Christ establishes us in himself and digs deep roots that are not only expansive like that tree, but go deep. So that's the goal here, is establishing us in himself. Having received an unshakable kingdom, he has a statement in which it now says that can be translated a number of different ways. As, let us be thankful, let us have grace, that we might have grace, that we might have thankfulness. Or, um, there's even a variant uh, in which it doesn't say, let us have thankfulness or let us have grace or that we might have. It just says, we have grace. Uh, John Calvin actually preser- uh, uh, prefers that variant, saying that it um, flows better with the, the text and seems to make more sense. That said, I'm not going to be dealing with that variant. The point of it is this, is that regardless, we have this basic idea. Because of this kingdom we have received and its unshakable nature, Grace is our place, and from that we live in gratitude for that grace. We have received grace, and from that grace we live in gratitude for that grace. And with the grace of that kingdom which we have received, that rule, we have all the attendant benefits, justification, sanctification, glorification, resurrection, and inheritance. We have all of those benefits and, the, and then we see that part, and that we have received this kingdom, having received this kingdom, uh, that we might have grace. Let us live devoutly and re- let us live devout and reverently serve him from the grace he has given us because we're thankful for what he's done for us. Let us, um, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That is... From that, to understand, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light, his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. That now that we have received mercy, and we've been made his people, that we may proclaim his excellencies, that we might serve him in newness of life and thankfulness. <coughs> There's the purpose of corporate worship. <clears throat> that is, gathering together with God's people. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 10, the vitality and, and importance of that to our own spiritual health. As we are not lone ranger Christians. That it is a worship to be scripturally, scripturally regulated by the scriptures of the new covenant. Guided by that which it says. And to do so with reverence and awe for the greatness of God. And remembering that that worship that we offer, whether it is this or our whole life, but, uh, well, actually in corporate worship, that when we do that, it's not, pri- it's not fundamentally about us offering something to God so we can get something from him. That was the Roman Catholic way of approaching it. During the Reformation, everything was about us making sacrifices so God would be pleased with us and then would give us things. That was the Roman Catholic view. 
The reformers, Martin Luther, referred to the gathering of God's people in their corporate worship. He called it the divine service, meaning it is God, when we gather together, God is serving us himself, feeding us and nourishing us and giving us of himself, serving us. John Calvin called it uh, the means of grace. That is the means, basic means ordinary means by which God feeds us and nourishes us that we might live ways of honoring him that it's about receiving from him that we might serve him well and then there is our our worship as Christians in our day-to-day life our whole life of worship we serve him in the newness of life we're called upon to do good works both in repentance of sin and in terms of doing good for our neighbor. But we don't do these good works because God needs them for anything. God does not need a single one of our good works. Not a single one of them does he need. So then who needs them? There's a sense where you and I need them to confirm our assurance, but that's secondary. Who really needs our good works is our neighbor and our brother and sister in Christ. It is our neighbor who needs our good works. Again, 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. To serve God and to abstain from passions of the flesh, to keep our conduct honorable, Why? So that when people speak against us, that when the gospel comes to them, they might glorify God the day the gospel visits them. Our neighbor needs our good works. And he says to, to do so with reverence and fear, knowing that our God is a consuming fire. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Notice we now we call on God as father. He is the impartial judge. So let us live in reverence and in awe of him. Uh, remembering to whom we belong and with awe for the greatness of his grace and the magnificence with thankfulness for his bestowing favor. And also knowing that he is a consuming fire. What do we mean when we think of God as a consuming fire? This was also referenced in Hebrews chapter 10 with reference to his judgment. With a consuming fire, he is one who judges, and he judges severely and righteously according to his own holy standard, which is perfect. We look at it from this angle in light of the context and things we've been learning. How is it that God, being a consuming fire, should motivate us to serve him? It's not. It, I would say, first of all, it's not out of fear that God might take things away from us. But it's out of the grace he has given us and out of gratefulness for this. From whom 
did God save us? From whom did God save us? We might say he saved us from the devil, he saved us from sin, he saved us from ourselves. All of those are true. But that's secondary to the first and foremost thing of which, from which he saved us. He has saved us from himself. He has saved us from his own wrath and from his consuming fire. So because our God is a consuming fire, that no longer faces us. So let us serve because he has rescued us from that. But he's also a consuming fire in this sense, in that in union with Christ, through the things that happen in our life and through his work in us, he consumes in us that which needs to go. He burns up that which needs to go. And he confirms our faith by his fire. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 6, I mean, First uh, Peter chapter 1 verses 6 through 9 speaks of that. In which we see <coughs> that though we, ex- uh, that it is though we experience severe emotional distress that comes from the various necessary trials in which you are experiencing. It tests the genuineness of our faith, demonstrates the genuineness of our faith. So thus we see that in his consuming fire, he's proving us. He's proving us. He's confirming us. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have received a great thing in Jesus Christ, a great and wonderful thing in closing. And so let us receive what he's given to us and hold on to what he's given to us. And when, and so frequently when, we turn to other things, let us keep receiving Christ. Let us keep turning to him. Let us remember to whom we belong and we shall find ourselves in growth. Let us pray. Our Father, blessed be your name, for you created all things, and you who you have recreated us. Would you lead us in all things in your life? Would you lead us in all things uh, to Christ Jesus, that we might more faithfully serve him from the newness of life by faith in him? And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.